This is Chapter Twenty Nine of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter Twenty Nine. Looking West for Sunrise. He kept his word. We heard his horn and instantly got up. It was dark and cold and wretched. As I fumbled around for the matches, knocking things down with my quaking hands, I wished the sun would rise in the middle of the day, when it was warm and bright and cheerful, and one wasn't sleepy. We proceeded to dress by the gloom of a couple of sickly candles, but we could hardly button anything our hands shook so. I thought of how many happy people there were in Europe, Asia, and America, and everywhere, who were sleeping peacefully in their beds, and did not have to get up and see the rigi sunrise, people who did not appreciate their advantage, as like as not, but would get up in the morning wanting more boons of providence. While thinking these thoughts I yawned, in a rather ample way, and my upper teeth got hitched on a nail over the door, and while I was mounting a chair to free myself, Harris drew the window-curtain and said, "'Oh, this is luck! We shan't have to go out at all. Yonder are the mountains in full view!' That was glad news indeed. It made us cheerful right away. One could see the grand alpine masses dimly outlined against the black firmament, and one or two faint stars blinking through rifts in the night fully clothed and wrapped in blankets, and huddled ourselves up by the window with lighted pipes, and fell into chat, while we waited in exceeding comfort to see how an alpine sunrise was going to look by candlelight. By and by a delicate spiritual sort of effulgence spread itself by imperceptible degrees over the loftiest altitudes of the snowy wastes. But there the effort seemed to stop. I said presently, "'There is a hitch about this sunrise somewhere. It doesn't seem to go. What do you reckon is the matter with it?" "'I don't know. It appears to hang fire somewhere. I never saw a sunrise act like that before. Can it be that the hotel is playing anything on us?' "'Of course not. The hotel merely has a property interest in the sun. It has nothing to do with the management of it. It is a precarious kind of property, too.' A succession of total eclipses would probably ruin this tavern. Now what can be the matter with this sunrise?" Harris jumped up and said, "'I've got it. I know what's the matter with it. We've been looking at the place where the sun set last night.' "'It is perfectly true. Why couldn't you have thought of that sooner? Now we've lost another one, and all through your blundering. It was exactly like you to light a pipe and sit down to wait for the sun to rise in the west.' It was exactly like me to find out the mistake, too. You never would have found it out. I find out all the mistakes. You make them all, too, else your most valuable faculty would be wasted on you. But don't stop to quarrel now. Maybe we are not too late yet. But we were. The sun was well up when we got to the exhibition ground. On our way up we met the crowd returning, men and women dressed in all sorts of queer costumes, and exhibiting all degrees of cold and wretchedness in their gaits and countenances. A dozen still remained on the ground when we reached there, huddled together about the scaffold with their backs to the bitter wind. They had their red guide-books open at the diagram of the view, and were painfully picking out the several mountains and trying to impress their names and positions on their memories. It was one of the saddest sights I ever saw. Two sides of this place were guarded by railings to keep people from being blown over the precipices, the view looking sheer down into the broad valley eastward from this great elevation, 
almost a perpendicular mile, was very quaint and curious. Counties, towns, hilly ribs and ridges, wide stretches of green meadow, great forest tracks, winding streams, a dozen blue lakes, a block of busy steamboats. We saw all this little world in unique circumstantiality of detail, saw it just as the birds see it, and all reduced to the smallest of scales, and as sharply worked out and finished as a steel engraving. The numerous toy villages, with tiny spires projecting out of them, were just as the children might have left them when done with play the day before. The forest tracks were diminished to cushions of moss, one or two big lakes were dwarfed to ponds, the smaller ones to puddles, though they did not look like puddles, but like blue teardrops which had fallen and lodged in slight depressions, comfortable to their shapes among the moss-beds and the smooth levels of dainty green farmland. The microscopic steamboats glided along as in a city reservoir, taking a mighty time to cover the distance between ports which seemed only a yard apart. And the isthmus, which separated two lakes, looked as if one might stretch out on it and lie with both elbows in the water. Yet we knew invisible wagons were toiling across it and finding the distance a tedious one. This beautiful miniature world had exactly the appearance of those relief maps, which reproduce nature precisely, with the heights and depressions and other details, graduated to a reduced scale, and with the rocks, trees, lakes, etc., colored after nature. I believed we could walk down to Vegas and Fitznau in a day, but I knew we could go down by rail in about an hour, so I chose the latter method. I wanted to see what it was like, anyway. The train came along about the middle of the afternoon, and an odd thing it was. The locomotive boiler stood on end, and it and the whole locomotive were tilted sharply backward. There were two passenger cars, roofed, but wide open all around. These cars were not tilted back, but the seats were. This enables the passenger to sit level while going down a steep incline. There are three railway tracks. The central one is cogged. The lantern-wheel of the engine grips its way along these cogs and pulls the train up the hill or retards its motion on the down-trip. About the same speed, three miles an hour, is maintained both ways. Whether going up or down, the locomotive is always at the lower end of the train. It pushes in the one case, braces back in the other. The passenger rides backward going up and faces forward going down. We got front seats, and while the train moved along about fifty yards on level ground, I was not the least frightened, but now it started abruptly downstairs, and I caught my breath. And I, like my neighbors, unconsciously held back all I could, and threw my weight to the rear, but, of course, that did no particular good. I had slidden down the balusters when I was a boy and thought nothing of it, but to slide down the balusters in a railway train is a thing to make one's flesh creep. Sometimes we had as much as ten yards of almost level ground, and this gave us a few full breaths in comfort, but straightway we could turn a corner and see a long, steep line of rails stretching down below us, and the comfort was at an end. One expected to see the locomotive pause or slack up a little and approach this plunge cautiously, but it did nothing of the kind. It went calmly on, and when it reached the jumping-off place it made a sudden bow, and went gliding smoothly downstairs untroubled by the circumstances. 
it was wildly exhilarating to slide along the edge of the precipices after this grisly fashion and look straight down upon that far-off valley which i was describing a while ago there was no level ground at the kaltbad station the rail-bed was as steep as a roof i was curious to see how the stop was going to be managed but it was very simple the train came sliding down and when it reached the right spot it just stopped that was all there was to it stopped on the steep incline and when the exchange of passengers and baggage had been made it moved off and went sliding down again the train can be stopped anywhere at a moment's notice there was one curious effect which i need not take the trouble to describe because i can scissor a description of it out of the railway company's advertising pamphlet and save my ink on the whole tour particularly at the descent we undergo an optical illusion which often seems to be incredible all the shrubs fir trees stables houses etc seem to be bent in a slanting direction as by an immense pressure of air they are all standing awry so much awry that the chalets and cottages of the peasants seem to be tumbling down it is the consequence of the steep inclination of the line those who are seated in the carriage do not observe that they are going down a declivity of twenty to twenty-five degrees their seats being adapted to this course of proceeding and being bent down at their backs they mistake their carriage and its horizontal lines for a proper measure of the normal plane and therefore all the objects outside which really are in a horizontal position must show a disproportion of twenty to twenty-five degrees declivity in regard to the mountain by the time one reaches Kaltbad, he has acquired confidence in the railway, and he now ceases to try to ease the locomotive by holding back. Thenceforth he smokes his pipe in serenity, and gazes out upon the magnificent picture below and about him with unfettered enjoyment. There is nothing to interrupt the view or the breeze. It is like inspecting the world on the wing. However, to be exact, there is one place where the serenity lapses for a while, this is while one is crossing the Schnurrtobel bridge, a frail structure which swings its gossamer frame down through the dizzy air over a gorge, like a vagrant spider-strand. One has no difficulty in remembering his sins while the train is creeping down this bridge, and he repents of them too, though he sees, when he gets to Fitznau, that he need not have done it. The bridge was perfectly safe. So ends the eventual trip which we made to the Rigi Kulm to see an alpine sunrise. End of chapter 29